sorry, this morning we come for a third time to the, the book of Job. Um, if you had the, the book of Job open before, you just, just have it ready. Um, we're not, we're not going to have a, a Bible reading just now, um, and you'll, you'll see why that is in a moment. But if you have Job ready, the book of Job begins on page 509. A couple of weeks ago, we read together chapters 1 and 2, uh, and we looked at a, a devastating series of losses that Job, the, the central character in the book, experienced. And, and I think the thing that struck us that day was how, although there's a lot of mystery that we don't understand, one thing that did seem clear was that, that God gave permission uh, for, for Job to suffer these losses. Last week in chapter 3, you'll remember, we saw Job's anguish and his despair in the face of his suffering. He, he's very clear he curses the day of his birth. There's nothing ambiguous about the depth of his despair in chapter 3. It's hard to watch people close to us suffering. It's a natural thing, I think, to want to bring comfort to those in despair. But the truth is we don't always do a very good job of it. Uh, Eugene Peterson describes the experience uh, that we have when we're on the receiving end of bad comfort. He says, the moment we find ourselves in trouble of any kind, sick in hospital, bereaved by a friend's death, dismissed from a job or relationship, depressed or bewildered, people start showing up, telling us exactly what's wrong with us and what we must do to get better. Sufferers attract fixers like road kills attract vultures. At first we're impressed by both, both that they're willing to bother with us and impressed by their faculty, their facility with answers. They know so much. How did they get to be such experts in living? And Peterson goes on to describe the, the fixers who come to us in our troubles More often than not, these people use the word of God frequently and loosely. They're full of spiritual diagnosis and prescription. It all sounds so hopeful. Then after a while, we begin to wonder, why is it for all their apparent compassion that we feel worse instead of better after they've said their peace? Many of us, uh, maybe most of us, have known that experience of receiving the so-called comfort that somebody's wanted to bring to us and feeling the worse for it. And Job knew that experience. His friends became so infamous for their bad comfort that we still talk today of unhelpful friends as Job's comforters. This morning as we read into chapter 4 and beyond, we're getting into a part of the book where Job's friends are are trying to comfort him. And from chapter 4 right through to 27, we get a series of dialogues where first Job speaks and then one of his his three friends replies. So even even the headings in the NIV uh, that you have in your hand there will will show you how the, the conversation goes back and forward. 
just a, a couple of observations. The, the cycle uh, of dialogue gets shorter by a third each time, and you get a sense that the further we go in the conversation, the guys have less and less to say. Uh, they're getting more and more frustrated, but they have less and less new uh, or, or insightful things to say. I think it's a cautionary passage of a part of the Bible. It's, it's not a part of the Bible that you go to to learn how to do a thing well or right. It's maybe, to be honest, a part that you go to to learn how, how not to uh, or to, to see failings in the, in the comfort that we bring. So I think we have a lot to learn from Job's friends, but it's, it's more in a, in a negative sense than, than a positive one. I've struggled a wee bit as I've prepared to, to look at the book of Job to know how to do it, 42 chapters and, and all of that. Today, we're going to try and cover from chapter 4 through to 27. So uh, just relax, get comfortable. Um, we, we're not obviously going to read uh, that, that passage, uh, and I certainly won't be able to comment in any detail on the, the content of it. The way I think we'll try to do this is, is to take a couple of examples of, of how these comforters interact with Job to give us a bit of a flavor for what's going on. I hope it's representative of the whole. Uh, and then we'll, we'll have a look to, to see uh, what kind of comfort these guys have brought. So, so let's now turn to what we would normally do as our Bible reading. Um, turn with me to Job chapter 15. We're going to read some words of Eliphaz the Temanite. Just before we read those words, let me tell you what comes before them. In each case, this, this is a real conversation recorded here. So whenever, whatever Eliphaz says here is going to be a response to what Job has said just immediately before. In chapters 12 to 14, if I summarize those for you, Job's basically talking about his suffering, he says, I can't understand why this is happening to me. I haven't done anything particularly wrong to deserve this. So that's, that's what Job's just said in chapters 12 to 14. Let's see now what Eliphaz has to say in chapter 15. He begins by telling Job that his, his protest is foolish. Verse 2, would a wise person answer with empty notions or fill their belly with the hot east wind? Would they argue with useless words, with speeches that have no value? But you even undermine piety and hinder devotion to God. Your sin prompts your mouth. You adopt the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you, not mine. Your own lips testify against you. Let's jump down to verse 14. Here, Eliphaz uh, reminds Job that, that no human being is innocent. What are mortals that they could be pure? Or those born of a woman that they could be righteous? If God places no trust in his holy ones, if even the heavens are not pure in his eyes, how much less mortals who are vile and corrupt, who drink up evil like water? And look down now to verse 20. 
Eliphaz sees the world only in black and white. He sees a rock-solid cause-and-effect relationship between a person's wickedness and their suffering. Verse 20, all his days the wicked man suffers torment, the ruthless man through all the years stored up for him. Terrifying sounds fill his ears. When all seems well, marauders attack him. He despairs of escaping the realm of darkness. He's marked for the sword. He wanders about for food like a vulture. He knows the days of darkness. He knows the day of darkness is at hand. Distress and anguish fill him with terror. Troubles overwhelm him like a king poised to attack. Because he shakes his fist at God and vaunts himself against the Almighty, defiantly charging against him with a thick, strong shield. Look at verse 29. Eliphaz says of the wicked man, He will no longer be rich and his wealth will not endure, nor will his possessions spread over the land. That seems to me like a pretty clear reference. Do you remember how wealthy Job was at the start? Uh, he, he was the wealthiest and, and most powerful man in the East. Eliphaz, I think, is, is probably referencing Job's own wealth. And, and he's saying that, that wickedness has been the cause of your, your financial downfall. Job has been contending here that he's suffering despite being innocent, but Eliphaz contradicts him and says that, that his suffering is a punishment for his evil. Let's read in another part of Job another quick example of this comfort that his friends bring him. In chapter 21, Job makes a, a point. He says, if you look around you in the world, you'll notice that there are people who don't care about God, who live long, happy lives, and die peacefully in their sleep. Uh, let's read Job 22 uh, on page 526. Let's see how Eliphaz responds to that idea. Job said, you know, there are a lot of wicked people who seem to prosper. Um, Eliphaz comes back at him, verse 22, or sorry, chapter 22, verse 2. Can a man be of benefit to God? Can even a wise person benefit him? What pleasure would it give the Almighty if you were righteous? What would he gain if your ways were blameless? Is it for your piety that he rebukes you and brings charges against you? Is not your wickedness great? Are not your sins endless? You demanded security from your relatives for no reason. You stripped people of their clothing, leaving them naked. You gave no water to the weary, and you withheld food from the hungry. Though you were a powerful man owning land, an honored man living on it, you sent widows away empty-handed and broke the strength of the fatherless. That's why snares are all around you, why sudden peril terrifies you, why it's so dark that you cannot see, and why a flood of water covers you. Remember what we learned about Job right at the start? Chapter 1, verse 1. He's blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. Here's Eliphaz, and he's suggesting that Job must have been wicked. He must have oppressed the weak who were under his power. Okay, Job, you have a good reputation. Somehow you've managed to hide your sin 
from the sight of the people around you. But somewhere behind the scenes, all this stuff has been going on. You, you must be a wicked person. Otherwise, you wouldn't be experiencing what you're experiencing from God. Eliphaz ends up calling Job to repent of his sins. Look at verse 21. Submit to God and be at peace with him. In this way, prosperity will come to you. Accept instruction from his mouth and lay up his words in your heart. If you return to the Almighty, you'll be restored. If you remove wickedness far from your tent and assign your nuggets to the dust, your gold of offer to the rocks in the ravines, then the Almighty will be your gold, the choicest silver for you. Surely then you'll find delight in the Almighty and will lift up your face to God. You'll pray to him and he'll hear you. You'll fulfill your vows. What you decide on will be done and the light will shine in your ways. When people are brought low and you say, lift them up, then he'll save the downcast. He'll deliver even one who's not innocent, who'll be delivered through the cleanness of your hands. Job, you've sinned. You must have. You've kept it hidden from the rest of us, but, but you've sinned. Now repent, and God will make it all right. That's the basic message of Job's comforters. You can read all of those chapters, and it's all variations on this theme. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, Job's so-called friends, this is the comfort they bring him. We're about halfway through our our time this morning, but I thought we'd pause just here to to pray and ask God's help as we we come to think about this part of His Word. So let's let's pray together. Father God, we long to know You better and understand Your ways better. Lord, we we would love to grow in the wisdom that we can offer each other. Lord, your word teaches that if we lack wisdom, we should ask you for it. So today we do that. We pray that you'd come and teach us something new this morning. Something new about yourself. So that we can be better friends to each other. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I've been encouraging you the last while to have a go at reading Job. Um, For those of you who haven't got round to that yet, I don't think I'm giving too much away when I say nothing about this interaction of Job and his comforters is is very uh, encouraging or satisfactory. Uh, There's nothing great going on uh, in these particular pages in the Bible. Nobody seems to be impressed with anybody else. The comforters... They're certainly not impressed with Job. So, for example, in chapter 8, verse 2, you've Bildad. He's annoyed with Job. And he says, your words are a blustering wind. Why don't you shut up, you windbag? You're talking a lot of hot air. So read this stuff. If you think the Bible's all polite and people are always kind and friendly to each other, that's simply not the case. Zophar, in chapter 11, he wishes that God would show up so that Job would be shut up, that God would come and put an end to Job's endless 
protests and his going on and on and on. These friends, in the end, become thoroughly fed up with Job. They wish he'd keep quiet and they wish he'd listen to them as they show him the right way of it. So Job's friends aren't impressed with Job. Secondly, Job's not at all impressed with his friends. He's not filled with gratitude. In chapter 16, he says, Miserable comforters are you all. Can you imagine that? People come round to your house to try and encourage you at a time when you're down. And somewhere in the heart of it, they go on and on so long that you find yourself having to say, Listen, miserable comforters you are. Well, that's what Job's been driven to. Listen to his sarcasm in chapter 12, verse 2. Doubtless you are the people and wisdom will die with you. You guys are the only smart guys in the world. When, when you die, there won't be a wise person left. He's, he's resorting to sarcasm. He's totally uh, frustrated with these friends. So, so for 24 chapters, there's basically this ding-dong of a row going on. Job's friends aren't impressed with him, and he's not impressed with them. Who's right? Um, you know, are they right? Are they right to be frustrated with Job because he's giving off? Uh, because he, he refuses to accept that his punishment is just? He's, he's blaming God? Are, are they right? Or, or is Job right to be angry with them because their, their comfort is so... Uh, so unsuccessful and unhelpful. It'd be helpful to know that, wouldn't it? Who's in the right here? Is it Job? Is it his comforters? Well, actually, we're told explicitly at the end of the book who's right. Chapter 47, verse 7. We'll come to it in more detail in a few weeks' time, but the Lord says to Eliphaz, he seems to be the, the chief of these comforters, the Lord says, I am angry with you, and your two friends, because you have not spoken of me what is right. It turns out that God's not impressed with Job's comforters either. He he doesn't agree with the things that they have been saying. When it comes to the nine chapters, nine of those chapters... Uh, from chapter 4 through to 27 are, are speeches by these three comforters. When it comes to those nine chapters, we'll have to say that by and large they're, they're mostly rubbish. A- except in a way they're, they're not. In his commentary, Christopher Ash suggests that much of what they say would probably have us putting ticks in the margin. So if you went along to a conference and these were the three keynote speakers, You'd come away with stuff in your notebook, thinking, oh, yeah, that was, that was interesting. Yeah, that was, that was right. If this stuff was total rubbish, it would actually be easier to deal with because you, you just write it off. As with a lot of false teaching, the danger here is that it's almost true. It's quite close to being true in many cases. So we're going to spend just a few moments to finish this morning looking at where these guys went wrong We're going to look, first of all, at what they believe, and then we're going to look at some crucial gaps of stuff that they didn't believe. 
So the theology of Job's friends is simple and, and clear. I think of a, a PowerPoint coming up at this point. Four short bullet points. First one, Job is absolute, or sorry, God is absolutely in control. These guys believe that. You'll see it if you, you read their speeches. The second thing they believe, God is absolutely fair and just. Third point, because he's in control, because he's fair and just, he always punishes wickedness and blesses righteousness pretty soon and certainly in this life. And the fourth bullet point, therefore, if I suffer, I must have sinned and I'm being punished justly for my sin. I'll leave those up there for a second. Sorry, the slide ended up quite full, but but there it is. What do you think of of these guys, their approach? We're in a sort of a strange position here because we know these guys are wrong. But but let's not dismiss this as uh, as stupid because it's not. The first couple of bullet points there are right. God is in control. He is absolutely fair. And the third bullet point has a lot of truth in it too. Whatever we say about unjust suffering, which is the subject of the book of Job, I think we'll all agree that that there are times in life when when evil doing meets with just suffering. So in general, these comforters might be right when they call Job to repent. In general, that's, that's not a bad thing to, to do. But it doesn't take any account of, of the actual circumstances of Job's life. In chapters 1 and 2, we were told three times that Job was blameless. We've got to hold the whole of this book together. One time the narrator tells us, and twice the Lord himself says that Job is blameless. So his comforters are making a huge mistake. The whole whole assumption that they're working on is wrong. Job isn't required here to repent of some particular sins. He's not being punished for sins. So whenever his friends, whenever his friends come alongside him, and when they go on and on and on, telling him that he is being punished for sin, what they're doing is they're adding a huge burden to the already insufferable burden that he's carrying. I don't know if you've ever seen the modern-day bumper sticker, right? I remember seeing this in the days when people used stickers on the back of their cars more than they do now. There's one that captures, I think, the tone of, of these comforters very well. It says, if you feel far from God, guess who moved? It's a very simple world where if we try to live well for God, then all is well. The sun always shines. We always experience the closeness of God, his friendship and his love. The circumstances of our lives are always good. That's the world of that bumper sticker and and the world of Job's comforters. On the first Sunday of July, a fortnight ago, we marked the anniversary, the first anniversary of the death of Andrew Drain. 
Many of you will know Andy or have known of him. He was Ricky's brother uh, and Karen Kennedy's brother-in-law and a friend of, uh, of many in the congregation here. We'd prayed for Andy repeatedly during the, the couple of years of his illness as he bravely fought leukemia. And as I've been preparing for this series, I've had the opportunity to read Code Red, Andy's book, which I know a lot of you have had a chance to read recently. In the book, he reflects on the book of Job, and he reflects on strength that he found there to, to face his battle with leukemia and finally his death. But at one point, he talks about friends who bring comfort to others, and he says this. If you're the church elder, the spouse or the partner, the friend or the pastor who's called to the bedside or the house or the living room of someone who's suffering, when it happens, please be slow to preach to them in their hour of need. When that moment comes, hold them if needed, cry with them if needed, but be very careful to open your mouth with platitudes and well-worn Bible phrases. The trouble with Job's comforters is that so much of what they say seems to be right. Do that exercise sometime. Go through their, their speeches and put a tick in the column beside every statement that they make that's true. You'll have a lot of ticks in your Bible. And because that's the case, it's easy to think of these guys as people who had it right but were pastorally insensitive. But the truth is they, they didn't have it right. The problem with Job's comforters isn't only in the tone, it's also in their content. The problem's not so much with what they did say as what they left unsaid. There are three vital truths that they didn't seem to believe. The first thing that Job's comforters didn't believe, they had no place for Satan in their scheme of things. We know from Job 1 and 2 that Satan's a very real uh, spiritual presence and influence. And we know that the whole of, of the tragedy of Job is, is predicated on, on a moment when he and, and the Lord had an argument. But these guys don't see it. In their world, evil is a purely human phenomenon. It has no spiritual dimension. They don't see that, that there's anything else coming to bear on, on Job. And how wrong they were to discount the role of Satan. A second thing that Job's comforters don't take seriously is the importance of waiting. For them, God's judgment is now. The wicked are punished now. The righteous are blessed now. It's all very simple. The lines are very clear, and it's all very black and white. Job sees it all very differently. And we'll see that in greater detail next week and in the weeks to come as we look at Job's faith. He's a man who's learned to live with attention. Attention 
that all is not as it should be. At least not yet. There's waiting to be done. God's judgment will only finally come at his final judgment. Not today. Not not now. And in the context of the Bible, the, the third and probably the biggest mistake that Job's friend made was was this omission. They don't believe in the place of innocent suffering. They think that if a righteous person was ever to suffer, then God would be called into question and the whole world would come to an end. Right at the beginning of his first speech, Eliphaz lays his cards on the table. He asks the question, who being innocent has ever perished? There's no such thing as the suffering of the innocent. Who being innocent has ever perished? Doesn't that question ring different to those of us who live in the light of the cross of Jesus Christ? We know that in fact the the only one innocent human being who ever lived suffered and perished. Our favorite Bible verse in John 3.16 tells us why. So that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. My dear friends, please know that there is innocent suffering right at the heart of the universe. The perfect Son of God suffered and died so that those who deserved the punishment wouldn't take it. With their tidy theological boxes, with their straight lines and with their black and white world, Job's friends, Job's comforters missed the heart of the universe. They missed God. And they missed his grace and his ways. Let's be careful not to do the same. Let's pray together. Father God, when we first encounter Job's friends, we, we think they're stupid and we know that we'd do an awful lot better than they would. But Lord, we, we know in our heart of hearts that, that we too fail to, to understand you, to grasp your, your mercy and your grace, and certainly fail to pass it on to each other. Lord, show us more of of Jesus. Help us to understand all that he has done for us and, and the tenderness 
with which he, he looks on those who are hurt and broken. Lord, we pray today that you'd teach us in this church to share the comfort we've found in you, to share that with each other. Lord, do that for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.